as we go into the next part of our worship, I encourage you to turn your attention to God's word and potentially not the video game on your phone. Um, and turn to Malachi chapter one. As God has been telling us, this is something that you would look back on and regret if you miss it. Because this has the word of life. This is a matter of life and death. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. And as you're getting there, I want us to consider where we've been for the past five weeks in this series on worship. A biblical theology of worship. What it means to worship is where we started so, so far, we've seen the biblical framework for worship. Week one, we said, what is worship? And we went through that. Second week, we talked about what our attitude should be regarding worship. And that was titled, Worship Attitude. And then two weeks ago, we looked at how careful we should be when we worship God. And how vigilant we should be. And last week, from God's word, we saw how God desires to be worshipped. That worship is to be pure before him. And he desires to be worshipped in purity. And nothing mixed with his worship. If you've noticed, we have been looking at what worship is. Or what our attitude should be and how we should be worshiping him. You notice those two WH questions, even though I don't, I don't know why how is a WH question. Um, but if it goes in there, right, it's the what and the how that we've been looking at. But do you know why you worship God? I'm asking you. I mean, you don't have to answer me. But why do you worship God? You can know what to do in worship. You can know how to worship him, but why? So in this passage this morning, as we read, I want us to consider and look at from the scriptures three reasons why worship is a mandatory response to God. Why worship is your mandatory response to God, and we'll see three reasons why in this passage. So let's read the text together in this entirety, and we'll dive in. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of God. As it begins, it says, The oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh, but you say, How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh, yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have set his mountains to be a desolation and his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been demolished, but we will return and build up the waste places. Thus says Yahweh of hosts. They may build, but I will pull down, and men will call, men will call them a territory of wickedness and the people towards whom Yahweh is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, 
Yahweh be magnified beyond the territory of Israel. A son honors his father and a slave his master. Then if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's the fear of me? Says Yahweh of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of Yahweh is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Please bring it near to your governor. Would, would he accept you? Or would he lift up your face, says Yahweh of hosts. But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. With this thing, which is from your hand, we, will he lift up in any of your faces, says Yahweh of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not light a fire on my altar in vain. I have no delight in you, says Yahweh of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even as the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be presented to my name, as well as a grain offering that is clean, for my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as, a, as for its fruit, its food to be despised. You also said, behold, how tiresome it is. As you dis disdainfully sniff at it, says Yahweh of hosts. As you bring what was taken in robbery, what was lame or sick, so bring the offering. Should I accept that from your hand, says Yahweh? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, our King, our Lord, your name is holy your word is holy so as we open your word that is holy that explains who you are to us and why we should worship you lord we come before you to beg and ask that you would open our eyes you would open our ears you would focus our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word by the power of your spirit so that we may glean from your word the truth that will transform us, the truth that will keep us from being accursed, the truth that will make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. 
whose name we pray. Amen. So, has anybody heard of this guy named Simon Sinek? Who in here knows who Simon Sinek is? Okay, let me ask a better question. Who in here watches TED Talks? Anybody? Good. So, I can, I, I, I'll invite you um, to, to watch Simon Sinek's um, TED Talk. He's not a Christian, but he is a leader or a trainer of leaders. He has written a book called Start With Why. That book in the corporate world, in the leadership world, was transformational. It has changed. It's, a, it's one of the best-selling books on New York bestsellers list. Over, I have a copy of it on my copy that I got years ago. It says over a million copies sold. Um, so I, I can imagine how, how many more sold since, since I've gotten it. So in that book, he talks about if you want to be a good leader, it's not just enough what to do or how to do it. You must know why you do what you do. He even presents a, 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 an example from a commercial or a promotion that Apple, why, why do most people have iPhones? It's a phone. We know what it is. We know how it works. I mean, you buy it from the store and then whatever. But why Apple? Why, why is there such, even between Apple and Galaxy, right? There's this rivalry that's going on. So his point is, it's because what Apple stands for. Why? Apple focused on their why to promote it. They didn't just say, here's a phone. You can use it. It's a touchscreen. Now buy it. This is not how they introduced it. They said, we will push. The reason why iPhones exist is to break the mold and be innovative. And that's why you should have an Apple phone. And everybody lines up every year and buys it. That's what he presents in that book. Now, I'm not here to talk about Simon Sinek, but I think he does have a point. If you start with the why, the what and the how follow, or the how and the what follow. And so far, we've been looking at what worship is and how to worship it. But if you don't know why you worship, it just becomes a mechanical thing. You come, you sit down, we tell you stand up, you stand up. Then we say, read out loud, you read out loud. We say, sit down, you sit down, close your eyes, you close your eyes, and you go home. And then it doesn't affect you at all. And you don't know why that is. And in this passage, like I said, we see God having a conversation. By the way, this word in the verse 1, if you look down with me, it says it's the oracle of the word of Yahweh. That word is more of a, a conversation that God is having. The way that Malachi is different than Isaiah even or any of the other prophets, it's very conversational. 
He's talking back and forth with his people. He's asking questions. And he's even answering the questions based on what the people were saying. So in this conversation, we see three reasons why worship is important to us and why God's people must worship him. First reason is God's love. Look at verse 2 with me. I have loved you, says Yahweh. And God's love is discussed not only in verse 2, but verse 3 to 5, he explains. His love, God's love for his people is characterized by his great affection that he has for his people, his great care that he has for his people, and his great loyalty and his faithfulness towards his people. That's what God's love is, by the way. Notice what I just said. His affection, his care, and his faithfulness. That's what God's love is. It's not just enough to have the, this warm, bubbly feeling, this affection that I, I love God or God loves me. But he goes beyond that. He cares for his people. Not just that he cares for them. He actually is faithful and loyal to his people. That's the kind of love that we're talking about. And we see this kind of love described in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. It's up there on your screen. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Do you hear that affection? Out of everybody in the world, God set his affection on Israel. And God has set his affection on you. Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor chose you, just in case you were starting to feel special. Because you were more in number than any, other, any of the peoples. You are the fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Right? God loved you. Why, why does God love you? Because he loves you. Why did God set his affection on you? Because you're, you're the most handsomest, the most prettiest, the most smartest, the most uh, educated, the most uh, devout, the, the, the most strongest person that there is? No, God loves you because he loves you. And that he doesn't just love you, but he actually cares for you enough to bring you out of the strong hand and redeem you. Why? Because he's faithful to his word. We see all of that played out in 
Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. And again, in Lamentations, by the way, these people would have known what Lamentations were because these are cries in exile, and these are people that had just gotten back to Israel from being exiled. And this book was written as a result of their exile. So they would have, they, this would have been fresh in their memory. The love and kindness of Yahweh indeed never ceases. For his compassion, you, you hear that language, never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the kind of love that God has on his people. But God, Paul says in the New Testament, being rich in mercy because of his great love. Why did God show you mercy? Because of his great love with which he loved us. I mean, you continue to read that verse that would tell you while we were still dead in our sins and trespasses is what it says. God loves dead people that are dead in sin and trespasses. So this is the kind of love by which God loves his people. This unique affection, by the way, is only reserved to his people. And you see that played out. He's like, how, how do we know we love God, that God loves me? How do you know that God loves you, by the way? Answer that question in your own heart. But you see the conversation happening, right? I have loved you, says Yahweh, but you say, how have you loved us? And his explanation is, I didn't treat you like I did Esau. I didn't treat you the way that I treated Edom. I didn't treat you the way that I treated the wicked. God has a unique affection with his people, with his covenant people, that is displayed in his scare and his faithfulness to his covenant. That he doesn't show anybody else. That is not his covenant people. Which he says Esau, he calls them Edom, and then they calls them the wicked again. People toward whom Yahweh's, Yahweh is angry forever. Can you imagine if God was angry with you forever? And he never showed mercy that is new every morning. He never set his affection on you. There are a group of people, according to this passage, that God's anger, when it says forever, I looked at the Hebrew, means forever, by the way. When's the last time you heard a, a, an Edomite existed? Never. Oh, I can, I can build it back up. He's literally... At war with these people. Look at what it says. Though Edom says we have been demolished. Okay. Then what happens? But we will return and build up the waste places. You know, I can, uh, you know, I'm just been knocked down. I can get up. I can do it on my own. That says Yahweh of hosts. They may build, but I will pull down. It's a perpetual cycle of failure after failure after failure with no end. 
So when God doesn't set his love on you, this is what happens. But he tells his people, Israel, and by he tells us now in the new covenant, because we have a new covenant in Christ Jesus, he has set his affection on you. You are a direct object of his love. And this is why Romans 5 tells us that God displayed his love to us. How? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Paul goes on and, and he continues and he says, maybe for a righteous man, one might lay down his life. But while we were still enemies with God, God shows his love by sending his son to die for us. So we even have a better covenant than the Israelites. And he's telling the Israelites, I love you. I have set my affection on you. And what should their response be? If you have seen this love, once you see this love, look at verse 5. Your eyes will see this. You will realize what kind of love, what kind of affection, what kind of care, what kind of faithfulness God has on you to give you such a life. When you see this, you will say what? Yahweh be magnified beyond the territory of Israel. That's worship language. Why do you worship? Because God has loved you, the reason you worship God is that your eyes have seen this love which He has bestowed upon you. That's the first reason. Second reason is God's position. Look at verse 6 with me. A son honors his father and a slave his master. And if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's the fear of me? Do you notice what is implied in that passage? In that verse? What God is implying there is God is both father and master to his people. Like we don't want to, especially nowadays, we don't, we don't want to, have that language of okay, God is our father. Yeah, there's a sense where we're no longer slaves. We just read it in Galatians. You know, you're no longer slaves. You're a child. You've been adopted into the family. But Jesus is what do we say? Jesus is anybody? Jesus is Lord is what we say. You know what that word Lord is in the, in the Hebrew? Adonai, which is translated in the Greek as kurios, which means master. And the word that is used here in the Greek is Adon, which is a derivative or, uh, of the word Adonai. But we never want to talk about that. When we say Jesus is my Lord, 
When you say Jesus is Lord, what you're implying that you are also his servant, your slave, if you will. Here, God is revealing himself both as father and master to his people, which makes his people in relation to who he is, in relation to God's position as father and master, what does that make his people? Makes them his children and his slaves. His Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. You are the sons of Yahweh your God. You should not gash yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead for you are a holy people to Yahweh your God and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples Isaiah 64 and 8 but now O Yahweh you are our father Israel says we are the clay you are a potter and all of us are the work of your hands. Oh no, this is an Old Testament. This language of we're clay, you know, you're you're our master, our father. Okay. John 20, 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to, to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them. I ascend to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. Okay, we get it. God is our Father. Yeah, sure. That's awesome. That's a great relationship to have. He's our Father and He's our God. And here's what Psalm 24.1 says. The earth is Yahweh's and all the fullness the world, and those who dwell in it. What does that make him? If everything in, in, God, in, in the world, in the universe, belongs to God, including all people, including his people, what do you call, what's another word for someone that owns everything? A master. Owns everything. An owner. Look at what he says in Ezekiel 8 and 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the Father as well as the souls of the Son is mine. Even to the very inner being of a man's life, the soul. He says it's mine. He has claim on it. He is the master. Paul discusses this as, as he refers to the church. Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God? And that you are not your own? Like you don't belong to yourself? Like your body don't belong to yourself? For you were bought with a price. So therefore, glorify God within your body. 
So whether you think of your body and your soul, you know, we, are, we live in a current state. My body, my choice. Right? It ain't yours. Your soul, sorry, newsflash, not yours, belongs to the master, belongs to the Lord. It's all his. Back in our text in verse 6, here's the question that he asks. If I am really your father, my people, where is the honor that a father requires from his son? Or a son is to show his father. If I'm really your Lord and your master and the owner and the author and the finisher of your faith, if I'm really your master, my people, yes, huh? where's the fear? Where's the reverence? Where is this obedient respect that a master requires from his slaves? God, based on his position, based on his relationship with his people, requires honor. That's glory. That's significance. That's weightiness. That word that is used there in, in, in Hebrew, by the way, I, I, didn't, I didn't tell you this in the beginning. I might teach you some Hebrew words. It's kabod. It almost sounds like, by the way, when you, when you go and look it up, and, and, and when I went and looked, looked it up in, in Logos, and, and I, I, I did a word study on that word, guess what came up? I can read Amharic, right? So there's even an Amharic writing. Which has the same meaning, if, if you know what that means. It's weightiness, something that is heavy. Like literally those three letters were in there when I was studying it. It's, it's the same derivative, right? I, I thought that was fascinating. I don't know if that was. You know, we use that term, right? You know what, what it means for something to be heavy. Because we use the opposite of it. If I tell you something and you're not paying attention to me and you just get up and go and you don't care about it, I would say, that you took me lightly. That doesn't mean that I weigh less than you. Maybe I do. I don't think so. I'm not talking about my weight on, on the scale when I say you took me lightly. It just means that you didn't take me to heart. You didn't take what I said with the level of heaviness. So when God's word is being preached. When God is speaking to us and we're like, ah, you know, that's another day, another Sunday. When God's presence as a father is being proclaimed, when you consider God as your father, and you're kind of like, ah, it's kind of like my dad, you know. He talks, then I just I just listen, I nod my head, 
I try to do something to suffice him. And then I just move on. That's you taking them lightly. And that's what Israel was doing. That's what his people were doing. And if we're being honest, we find ourselves in this conversation, don't we? Like you're taking them so lightly that as his word is being proclaimed, as I'm trying to make a case from his word that you should be taking him with his weight, you're texting. That you're sleeping. That your mind is wandering somewhere else. This is his word, the oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel. If I am your father, where is my honor? Where is my significance in your life? Where is my weightiness? Where is the fearful respect? Notice here the response of honor and fear is a result of who God is as a father and as a master. And a father and a master initiates, right? It's based on what he as a father and as a master is and what he initiates and provides. A father provides cover. A father provides care. A father provides wisdom. A father provides all the necessities. So the honor that his, the, the children re reflect back is based on what the father is providing. It's not out of, out of a vacuum, even as a master. It's what he initiates, what he provides. So you are to worship God because of your relationship to him. Because of what position he holds in your life. Does God really hold the position of heavenly father in your life? If he is, is he that weighty or is he just something light? where you can just get up, leave when you're bored, or when you get called out for playing video games during a sermon, and then just don't show up. Tell them I said that. Because it's a matter of life and death. Then he turned around and said, oh, you're my father. Yeah, you're my... Why do you call me Lord, Jesus says? And do not do what I, what I say. Over and over and over again, what, what does God say? These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Lip service to God is not true worship. We saw that last week. Why should not it be true worship? Because he is your father and your master, if you are a covenant people with him. He is your father who has adopted you into his family. You know what it cost him to adopt you into his family? His son's life. 
If I were to take one of you and adopt you into my family, I would have to go to court and pay a fee and go through a rigorous process to adopt you. You know what it cost for you to be considered a son and a daughter of God? It cost him his one and only son. You know what Paul says right there? You have been bought by a price as a master would buy a slave from a slave market. That's the language that he uses. Triggers. You have been bought with a price. You know what that price is? A sinless, perfect son. Who never, not even for one second, sinned. Or had an idea about how to be dishonorable. Spat on. Beaten. crown of thorns being pushed onto his forehead, embarrassed, naked, hanging on a cross. That's the price that was paid for him to be your master. That's why you worship and we worship God because of his position. He is both our Father, and our Master. And that requires for us to respond and worship. And as your owner, as your Master, by the way, He gives you life. He sustains your life. We just sang about it, right? It's your breath and our lungs, right? And I can sing because, I, one, I can't hold a note, as you can tell. Two, I'm, I'm just now getting my voice back. I don't know if you can tell it's going in and out. Like, I did not understand what that, like, I, when your voice is gone and you have to communicate with people and the best you can do is go like this. And they, you understand that it is him that even sustains your vocal cords because he owns your vocal cords. The breath that you have, the, 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 the ears, the health that you're experiencing, everything about your life and your sustenance is provided by your owner, your master, and therefore you worship him. That's why. Lastly, or the third reason, I won't say lastly, is his name. God is concerned about his name. And when we say God's name, by the way, I'm not just saying the, the word, the, the letters G-O-D or J-E-S-U-S or Y-H-W-H, whatever you want to. I'm not just saying the mere pronunciation of the word God. 
when he says when I say God is concerned about his name, I mean his character, his reputation, his very essence and existence, his presence, his self-revelation. That's what his name means. God's name is the fullness of who he is and who and how he acts. That's what that's what it means. God's name is the fullness of who he is and how he acts. And he does everything for his name's sake. You know, in the wilderness, when Moses were bringing, when, when God through Moses was bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, and Moses pleaded with God and says, Please, I pray you, show me your glory. I want to know who you are. I, and this is, by the way, right after they had worshipped an idol and called it God. They called it, this is Yahweh. So I'm not talking just merely about G-O-D or Yahweh or Jesus. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just saying that. Moses was, he understood he's more than just a word. And he says, just show me the fullness of who you are. Show me your glory. In Exodus chapter 33, here's what he says to him. And he said, this is God speaking. I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. He is concerned about his name, his character, his reputation, his existence, his presence, his self-revelation, his self-disclosure. I will declare my name. And then in the next chapter, when he descended into, onto the mountain and he put Moses in the cleft and he passes by and he shows him the backside, here's what it says. Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him and he noticed the capital H. It's not Moses saying this. It's God himself saying this. He called upon the name of Yahweh. Yahweh called upon the name of Yahweh. And he says, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he tells him, who he is, the fullness, is compassionate, right? Those, those things that we saw, I think, here or maybe in the afternoon. How many of you are familiar with Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He leads me, right? You guys are saying it. There you go. What does verse 3 say? He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness so that I can live my best life now, so that I can be happy and blessed. Not what it says. For his name's sake. He does everything from creation to redemption, to the consummation of this universe. He does everything for His name's sake. Why did God save you? 
for his namesake. He's concerned about his name. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. Why does he act? Why does he do anything? For my own sake. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? God is serious about his name, about his character, about his self-revelation, about his presence. But his existence. You read Ezekiel 20 for my namesake. For now, I think it's like four or five times. Even in our text today, back in Malachi chapter 1. Seven times between verse 6 and 14. He talks about his name. Look at verse 6. End of verse 6. O priest who despise my name. Verse 11. From the rising sun even to a setting, my name will be great among the nations. And every place incense is going to be presented to my name. As well as grain offering that is clean for my name. Will be great among the nations. Verse 12. But you are profaning it saying that the table profaning what? What is the it that it's referring to by the way? I almost read over it and it's easy to read over that. You are profaning it. What is the it? God's name. Verse 14. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Seven times in six verses. He's talking about his name. Do you think God cares about his name? Just a little bit maybe? That about his character? About his presence? Do you think that may be a reason why we should be concerned about his name and how we should respond? And worship today. Furthermore, we see that three times, as we just read in verses 11 and 14, three times he says his name would be great and his name would be feared. That's the response that I, his name will be great and his name is feared. Not even will be feared. I'll get into that in a second. But his name is feared. Twice he says his greatest. His name will be great once he says his name is feared. Just by the mere presence of God. By the way, just, just going back to that, that time where Moses asked him, 
who, who he really, really was, show me. And then God shows up and he declares his name in Deuteronomy 34. Do you remember what Moses did? He worshipped. When God's name was proclaimed to Moses, and he saw the fullness of who he is, not even really the fullness, but the, and as much as he could bear to the point where this man was like glowing. You think your little Instagram stories of glow-up stories is something. You should see Moses' glow-up when he sees God's presence. Just by his presence, just by his self-revelation, just by the virtue of who God is and his character, God says, I am to have more value. That's what it means to be greater. I am to have more importance. I am to have more significance. That is greater than anything or anyone. Just by his presence just by his self-revelation, just by the virtue of who he is and what his character is. He says, his name is, not should be, not I want my name to be. My name has this is, right? Is there any grammar? Is this is an action verb? It, it, it's an identifier, right? It's, it's a verb. It, that's who he is. This is the quality inherently in his name that causes you to fear. My name is feared. What does it mean to fear God? I'm sure you've heard sermons after sermons, explanations. You know, to fear God is to, you know, respect Him and have a reverence towards Him. Sure, that's what is meant here. But I think it's more than that. Biblically speaking, the word for fear is used in five categories. I think all five categories apply here. The first one is terror, like literally being afraid. There's a spider behind you. Ah! No, there's not. Don't worry. I freaked out a couple of people. People are looking around, right? Whatever you're afraid of. If a lion were to, to, to walk in this room in this moment, you would be so consumed with terror, you would surprise yourself how fast you can run, how high you can jump. Maybe you would freeze up. Whatever it is, it will consume you. To fear God, when His presence, to fear God's name is when God's presence, when His existence, when His self-revelation is clear to you, it must consume you just like that. 
should grip your emotion. But it's also a sense in which the Bible refers to fear as not emotional, but a realization of, of, of sinfulness. We saw in Isaiah last week, or was it a couple of weeks ago, when Isaiah sees God and fear takes over him, he says, Whoa, it's me. Whoa, it's me. I am undone. It's like I'm dead. Remember that Gen Z term that I used? And everybody laughed just like a few of you are laughing right now. Why did, why did Isaiah have that reaction? Because he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He realizes his sin in light of who God is. So when God reveals himself, remember what, 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 what Peter did? When he, he, him and his brother was just working hard all night trying to catch fish. And they can catch not one little tilapia. And Jesus walks up, and look at here's a carpenter. He comes in, and he's like, oh, just take the boat up. I'm like, okay, master. All right, Lord. I'm, I'm say, throw it on this side. Like, I've been fishing all night. And then he throws it. And then his net starts breaking. That he had to call the neighboring boats to come and help him load up all that fish. And he realizes he's in the presence of the holy. God is present with him. And what does he say? Leave me, Lord, I am a sinful man. That kind of fear. There's, there's a fear that comes over you when you realize that God's presence is there. When his name is proclaimed, when his character is evident to you. That kind of fear when you realize sin. And obviously, the reverence and the awe, like, wow. Like, my jaw drops. I'm so respectful. I'm, I'm bowing down. I don't think any of us, if Jesus were to walk in right now, you might be thinking that I'm going to be like, hey, Jesus, come on in. Come on. Every single one of us. would have a level of awe. Forget Jesus. By the way, I'm going to get into that actually. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. That kind of reverence. His presence bringing about righteous behavior. That kind of fear. And worship. Is the last one, the last sense that the word fear is used. So in light of God's name, because of who God is and his character, worship needs to be our response. That's the reason why you worship. It's because he loves you. It's because who he is as a father and as a because of his position as a father and master, because of his name, because his name requires worship. 
awe, reverence, fear, terror, all those things. One of the fascinating and amazing things about the Bible is that it does not hide anything from, from us. It doesn't hide the reality on the ground. Because in our text, as we read it, if you paid attention, you know what the reality is on the ground. The reality on the ground is far from worshiping God for these reasons. The heart of God's people and, the, the, and, and their worship is actually marked with contempt. O oh, priests who despise my name, they despise him and they disdain him. There's, there's a term in, in, in um, verse um, 13. Where it says, you disdainfully sniff. I mean, there's, there's an expression for you. At his name, at God. Right? That, you hear that sniff? I don't know if you, if you heard that, right? It's kind of that careless shrug with the shoulder. Like he even, like to that, to that degree is how they despised him. Unvaluable. They they had completely. And here, there's an implication, by the way, that they wouldn't even do it to their own earthly magistrate. They wouldn't even do it to their own governors. Look at what he says to them in verse 8. Please. The way that you're despising my name and what you're bringing to me, the way you're worshiping me, bring it to your governor and see what happens. Right? I, I said I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. But if, if there was a, like a celebrity that you have been following on Instagram that, that were to walk in right now, your jaw would drop. Like you would stop everything. You just All your attention would be there. Who am I in light of them? But in the presence of God, whatever, man. I'll be back next week. He'll forgive me. I don't have to give him my best. He understands. He knows my heart. I don't have to be obedient and be afraid of who God is. Well, you know, you're undervaluing who God is. That's what the word despise means. I believe the reason why the Israelites did it is the same reason why we do it. Because they hadn't considered why they should worship God. They knew how, the way that we know how. They knew what to do, the way that we know what to do. We just need to show up on Sunday and just go through the motions. They just didn't know why. They didn't consider the why. And if we're honest, 
we also undervalue God's love for us. We undervalue his relationship, his position in our lives. We undersell his presence. We undervalue his presence, who he is, and his name. We undervalue that. And as a result, we fail like the Israelites did to worship God from a heart of worship that doesn't consider the why. We may know what to do. We may know how to do it. But if you want to worship God from a heart of worship, here's a practical application. Consider these three reasons. Consider his love and love him back with all you are. Consider his position in your life as your father and as your master and honor him and fear him. Consider his identity and his presence and his name and fear him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that your word speaks truth to us. And we're so thankful that your spirit is at work in us and among us. The spirit that inspired the words that we read and we learned is being applied by the same spirit to our lives and to our hearts. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us so much that you gave your only begotten son. That you gave us faith and repentance. That you have looked upon us favorably and gracious, been gracious to us because of your love. Lord, let us not take your love for granted. Thank you for adopting us into your family and be being our father. And being our Lord. Give us the wisdom to honor you and to fear you. To have nothing more significant than who you are and your name. And your presence being the most awesome, the most fearsome thing there is in our lives, Father. Lord, all of these things, your love, your position, and your name has been given and shown to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, to whose image you are conforming us by your Spirit, Lord. So give us a heart for the gospel. Give us a heart that stares at your son, Jesus Christ, so that we may know why we worship you. It is because of your son, Jesus Christ, who revealed you to us, our Father and our God. So Father, let us stay our minds on him, to stay our, mind, our hearts on him. 
Let him be the one who guides our heart of worship. Let him be the reason why we worship you. And we ask you all these things in his name. Amen.